I find that when the world gets very, especially turbulent, that my desire for my own writing is to slow down even more because I find that every day my response is radically different. Hi, I'm Eric Ostro, host of Live at the Lortel. For season two, while theaters are still closed due to the COVID-19 pandemic, we are turning our focus to discuss the reckoning the theater community is facing for its history of systemic racism. We also wanted to give theater artists a platform to share their thoughts on the political and social changes in our country and how they envision the future of the American theater. I will be sharing my hosting duties with members of the BIPOC community to provide our audience with different perspectives and new ideas. It is our sincere hope these conversations will help us all learn from one another and begin the healing process. First, I want to introduce my co-host. Good afternoon, Joy. Hi, Eric. It's good to be here. It's good to see you, Lucas. You too. So let's welcome our guest, playwright, Lucille Lortel winner, Lucas Nath. Welcome. Thank you so much for coming on to the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm a big fan. And if I fangirl out a bit, my apologies in advance. Um, I'd love to talk a little bit about your last show, which congratulations, won the 2020 Lucille Lortel Award for Best Solo Show, Dana H. I would love to talk a little bit about your process, where your inspiration comes from when you're writing. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess I'll start with Dana H. I can't remember quite what year now. Steve Cawson of The Civilians had come to me interested to know if I had any ideas for some kind of documentary theater project, investigative theater project. And I told him that there was this story about my mother. And there were points where my mother would say, have you thought about turning uh, what happened to me into a play? And she's like, do you, do you think that could work? I was like, oh my <laughs> gosh, I have no idea how I would go about that. Very daunting task. Maybe even a week before Steve and I had that meeting, she brought it up again. I was never even quite sure how serious she was about it, whether or not she was sort of kidding with me or like, it's a strange thing to kid about, but she does have that sense of humor. So I mentioned it to Steve and he was really excited about it. So we set up an opportunity for my mother to sit down with Steve. Because it had come up previously, I had had the thought of, well, what would this be like as a play? And knowing the story, the challenge for me was always, well, if I wrote this in a play, people would say, wait, but did you make that up? Did that really happen? It was, it was very yeah. hard to sort of, I mean, it's just a story that has a lot of things that are strange and sometimes hard yes. to understand. And I knew that that was a challenge with it. And my mother is a really fascinating person and she has this incredibly dry sense of humor, gallows sense of humor, and will sort of very casually say the most alarming thing. I've long suspected that it influenced how I write anyway, which is that I'm always asking if actors can, I know that the thing you're saying sounds wild, but just say it's the most as matter of fact way possible. So her voice is very much already in my head. 
So I told Steve, I, I said, make sure that the recording device you have is good enough that we could use the actual recording if we need to. Because I was starting to have this instinct that maybe I wanted to work with the recording in some way. I had previously played around with lip syncing. So it was something that I was really interested in. I had, when I was in grad school at NYU, I spent a lot of time watching the work of Reza Abdo, who is a uh, the late great avant-garde theater director who did a lot of work yeah. with lip syncing. So that was in the back of my mind. And then Steve conducted the interviews over several days and I got the transcripts and I think pretty quickly I suspected, okay, this is going to be a lip sync piece and had started working with the transcripts. I have this process that I use when I'm writing. Normally when I set about writing a play, I like to write in these short bursts, like they call them scraps. They're little bits and pieces and little scraps of dialogue. It might be two lines of dialogue. It might be a page and a half. It might be a monologue. It might be, and I accumulate in times hundreds of these pages. And then I get into a room with actors and we just read through the scraps. And it's in just sort of hearing how people interact with the scraps that I start to move them around, rearrange them. And if I have enough discipline, I'll throw it all out and see, okay, now what happens if I write the play now, trying to kind of recreate this? I'm doing a lot of hand gestures, I know. Uh, trying to recreate a thread. That's okay, it's coming um, through again. So in a funny way, that's sort of what I did with the transcripts is I went through and I broke it up into lots of bits and pieces and I titled each one and then I would arrange them in different orders because a lot of material, the play is what, 75 minutes long or 80 minutes, something like that. It's heavily, heavily edited down. And there are moments where she'll even say, wait, hold on, I don't remember the order this happened in. So there was a kind of reconstruction act that was happening of trying to sort of put together what is a possible order. That's kind of how the play came about. And then we did workshops where we tried to see, okay, wait, does this lip syncing thing work? Can, is it, interesting to watch or is it tedious? And what became really exciting about it was it's not a pristine recording. She was wearing some bracelets. You can hear her jangling. And that became part of the soundtrack. You start working with an actor and you find, oh, okay, it feels like you want to move your hand here. Okay, let's move a jangle there. And it becomes mm -hmm. this kind of musical composition. By the end, we're negotiating like fractions of a second, like how much pause is there here? Where do you take a breath here? And the objective is to try to make something that is true to what she's saying, but it's also crafted. And I would check in with her on occasion. And I, I spent, it took me a while before I sent her a draft because we had to go back and conduct some additional interviews. And I didn't want her to be self-conscious about when you know that it's the recording that will be used, then you start to, you tidy up your sentences and you, and so once we knew that we had all the footage we needed, I sent it to her and uh, she's like, so what did you do? This is just what I said. I was like, yes, got it. <laughs> Every step of the way, like from that point on, I would check in. It's like, okay, do you 
is this okay? Do you want this material in here in making sure that she was happy with it and felt it accurately represented her in her thoughts? Yeah, it was incredible to watch the actor, Deidre. And we had her on the show last season. We talked about her experience and her learning the material, you know, whatever her process is, is different, but, you know, by road and then everything to a fraction of a second. And I mean, her performance is just, it's a revelation. I mean, I've never seen anything like that on stage before in my life. And I don't think I, I ever will. It was a marriage of all of these components that made this beautiful piece of work. I mean, no matter what the subject was, and it's a difficult subject, but the, it's where this and art met, and it was an incredible, incredible piece of theater. It's funny, I think the first time I ever saw Dee Dee on stage was in Fornes's play Mud, and yeah. I, I remember watching her thinking, she reminds me of my mother. You know, again, my, my mother's voice is sort of very central to how I work anyway, so I found myself always writing material for Dee Dee to perform. This is the first time we've ever gotten to work together, but she has a certain quality of voice that my mother has. You know, I do find myself gravitating towards actors who have that. Quincy Tyler Bernstein comes to mind as another actor that there's something in just sort of like the directness, the flatness, the, again, somehow resonates with my mother. I want to take it back a little bit. I want to touch on A Doll's House Part 2. I want to spend a couple of minutes talking about it. Again, another piece of work that I was very drawn to. But I mean, I was fascinated by A Doll's House in school, in undergrad and then grad school. And I've always been very fascinated by Ibsen and the, and who he was at the time and where we are now. I'm interested how this idea came to you about nor coming back. And, and I know you've talked about it at probably at nauseum, but can you fill our audience in on, on your experience with Ibsen and, and how this came to you? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've always been fond of Ibsen. I've been fond of how those plays are these tight plot machines, but at the same time, the role that argument plays in the plays, my favorite of Ibsen's plays are the ones where you do find yourself torn between two opposing points of view. I've always kind of admired Ibsen. I feel like Ibsen was very much haunting the Christians. Enemy of the People and Master Builder were plays that were in the mix of things I was thinking about when I wrote that play. At some point, I just had the thought that it would be kind of fun to write a sequel to A Doll's House. When Actors Theatre commissioned the Christians, I made a big list of all the plays that I was potentially interested in writing. And one of the things I wrote down was a sequel to A Doll's House. This was always in the mix. It ended up being a commission from a South Coast rep. And it seemed like a good match because South Coast rep is sort of in between two identities as a kind of, their sort of core audience response very much to classics, but also there's this big new play element to that theater. So this seemed to sort of sit in an interesting way. The work of writing that play was to sort of first sit with the original and and I found a 
I went and Googled online for just like a pretty ordinary translation of the play. In fact, I would even go so far as to say not a very good translation of the play. I just found one that was sort of like posted on some website that had like some, the type of website that has a very distracting wallpaper behind the text so you can't really read it. Um, that's what I was looking for. Like not a great translation of the know exactly those websites you're talking about, right? And I cut and pasted it and I went through and tried to sort of parse each line to sort of write it in my own words, so to speak. And I more or less sort of worked my way through the whole play. And by the time I got to the end, I had sort of accumulated these sort of thoughts and about what wasn't said, what, what sort of, I, you know, as I'm sort of writing it in my own words, I'm kind of having the instinct to say more or to like add something, but I'm holding off. And so by the end, I had kind of built up a lot of arguments and counter arguments that of course benefit from a hundred years passing from when it was written. And that's sort of where I started. And I just, again, using that kind of scrap writing approach, I just wrote little bursts. I wrote like, okay, what did Torvald not say in that last scene that in the months after she left, I can imagine him going, oh, I wish I said this, like writing all of those. And then once I wrote those, then I had an instinct about, okay, well, now Nora wants to say this to him. And were there any things that Nora wished she had said differently? Or is there anything that she wished she had added to it? And so it grew out of these little bits and pieces of argument. And then the process of the writing the play was to sort of figure out, wait, so who are the characters in this play? Because there were, at points, many more characters than the four that appear in the final version. You know, it's just, you got these arguments, but then sort of what's the plot engine of the thing? So it's coming up with that under the influence of Ibsen, that of course there's some letter that somebody received and there's some sort of scandal that somebody's trying to keep a secret and all of that type of stuff. That's fun to play with. I like that stuff. That's a very interesting take into creating a piece of art. So is that a technique that just kind of came to you one day and you thought, let me go inside this play and deal with the subconscious and the as-ifs and the what-ifs with these characters? Or did is that something that you may have learned in school or you heard of someone else doing or this just came out of your imagination? I had seen versions of it from other people. The sort of just starting with that sort of scrap writing process, where does that come from? And it just comes from feeling like when I go to write a play, I might have a moment in the play that I'm really excited about, but I have to like write the beginning part before I get to that moment I'm excited about. And inevitably, all of that sort of drudgery, all of that sort of obligatory work to get to the thing I really want to write, it's never all that good. And then it makes me get more fixed in my perspective about the order in which things have to happen in the play. And so at a certain point, I wondered, what if I just went straight to, I just wrote only the moments that are like first popping into my brain and then kind of work from there. Also comes a little bit out of watching plays rehearsed, where when you watch actors rehearse a play, they sort of take a piece of it 
and they do it over and over and over. And I wondered, what does it look like to say, I'm going to rehearse writing this play. Mm. I'm going to show up every morning and I have a couple of moments that are really interesting to me. Somehow I got to those moments, but there's just a couple of moments I'm really interested in. And if I go ahead and just write them over and over and over and over and try this with it and try this with it and try lots of different approaches and different takes and different actions and different, then I start to kind of learn the pieces that interest me the most. Inevitably, as I'm working, new ideas start popping up and the play can kind of grow out of that. It's just a question of how do you get to the moment where your stuff is percolating. Mm -hmm. And and I guess like, you know, if I were to say something that was a really big influence on me, it is the work of a group like the Joint Stock Theater Project, which is is an English theater company, Carol Churchill being one of the more famous people to come out of it. There's a lot of work that involves research and then kind of for lack of a better term, an embodiment of that research. You have company members who might go out and interview someone about their occupation. And then the actor comes back into the rehearsal room and everybody else interviews that actor about their occupation. And they sort of enact or embody what they learned from going out into the world and talking to somebody who is not them interesting collisions happen that way. And there's a kind of like embodiment thing that's happening when I go and I sort of channel the writing of A Doll's House. There's a wonderful quote. I saw the play quite a few times. So funny. And so much of the humor comes from um, the hurt. And the. Um, I like what she says, um, if I'm left to myself, then what do I want for myself? I hope I'm not paraphrasing. I believe that that that's the line. And I find it fascinating what the current answer to that question is today. This is from the final, spe- her sort of final monologue. In yeah, the film, correct. Right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so in this speech, she's talking about the, you know, when she left, she tells the story of what happened when she left the house 15 years ago and found that Every time she made a decision, she noticed that without thinking, kind of heard the voice of all these people in their lives and everything that they told her she should want. Her solution to the problem was to live in silence where there were not other voices talking to her and to stay in silence until she could finally hear the sound of her own thinking. What that monologue secretly about is writing. (laughs) It's about, I teach playwriting and I'm obsessed with the thought process behind writing. I often get students pretty late in the program and they have often become very accustomed to notes, to here's what I've written, give me notes so I can fix it and make it better. And I was fascinated by, can they actually sit in a reading of their play and hear what they actually think of what they've made? Can they sit in a reading and hear it as if they're a member of the audience? 
And can that lead their decision-making process? So the origins of that monologue were secretly about writing and how difficult it is to hear what you think of your own piece of writing. Obviously, like it extends beyond that, but that became sort of a starting place. But yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a really, really difficult difficult task. And I guess there's even a question of like, well, where, even if you could hear what you thought, where does that thought come from? Yeah. Which then finally became like the sort of prompt for the thin place, which is a play about, wait, where are your thoughts coming from? Who right. planted well, that let's, thought? Let's talk that? about it. Let's talk about the thin place, please. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, the thin place was a, um, I wanted to see what it would be like to write a horror play. And the question I had is, what do I find scary? And to me, the thing that feels very frightening is, what if my thoughts aren't my thoughts? What if my thoughts are somebody else's thoughts and they've been planted there and I'm actually not in control of what I'm thinking? As a child, I, I, um, for a while, we, we went to this church that had a lot of thoughts about demon possession. And in the church bookstore, there is a workbook you could get, and I got it, about demons. And it took you through the different kinds of demons. It took you through how- How old were you? uh, Oh, gosh. Too young to be reading this book. Okay, that was my my point. Okay. (laughs) Probably nine or 10. There were things in there that if somebody sneezed during a church service, that might be an indicator that there's a demon in there. Uh-huh. And uh, I remember, you know, I sneezed during a church service and I got really anxious about it. And, I bet you did. But yeah, that thought of like, well, is it what you think or is it what a demon thinks, you know, and are you possessed by a demon? And, you know, so there's a, there is in a sense a literal fear of that that I had as a kid, yeah. but now there is a, in another sense, a different kind of fear that I have of wondering, well, wait, why do I think what I think? Which is, you know, that question of what, what do you know? How do you know what you know? And, and are you sure you know it is the question that haunts most of my plays. That's so fascinating. You know, that's... Um... I'm sure most artists explore that and and peel back the layers of, you know, what do I think and what do I think what I think in their lives and with characters. What's on the horizon for you in terms of the next kind of topic that you want to explore, seeing that we're in this world of dual realities right now? Lots of people are experiencing COVID, the civil unrest, all of that stuff from different perspectives. And lots of people are right now exploring their thoughts, their beliefs, their biases, and how do they get to these thoughts, these beliefs, and these biases? Is that anything that's on the horizon for you in terms of dealing with subject matter? Yes, yes. <laughs> it's like, but it's also like, you know, it's something that I've been looking at for a while, and now I'm wondering, okay, so what aspect of it is there yet another way to explore that question? And I don't know. I'm in that state right now of I'm doing a lot of writing and I'm looking for what's the most next necessary thing to write. Mm-hmm. And I find myself wanting to really slow down 
I wouldn't say I'm taking a pause in writing, but I'm certainly not completing a script and handing it to anybody anytime soon. I feel myself kind of regrouping a lot. It's interesting. I was teaching, a, I teach at NYU and we were, I had my advanced play class last night and towards the end of class, one of the students was starting to speculate about what might be the type of play that people are going to be interested in when theater quote unquote reopens, acknowledging that there's all sorts of theater happening right now, but that, that sort of when things quote unquote return to normal, I was like, gosh, I don't even know how we guess at this right now. I have no idea. And I have a little bit of an instinct that there's going to be a hunger for not only theater to kind of acknowledge, you know, everything we've been thinking about for the past six, seven months, but I also think there's going to be a desire for, I think there's going to be a renewed interest in formal innovation and a hunger for more theatrical play. I have a suspicion that theater might move away from literalism, but that's a, I don't know what that guess is based on. Maybe it has, a, it has something to do with what I'm both feeling, but also kind of what I'm noticing in student work. Beyond that, I can't really tell. So I don't know what I'm gonna really put out next, but I find that when the world gets very, especially turbulent, that my desire for my own writing is to slow down even more because I find that every day my response is radically different. Right. And so I'm interested in stepping back and looking in aggregate, what am I picking up on and what are my questions? Very interesting point. I mean, I think that every day, I mean, I'm not a playwright, but I think as artists, like one day we'll be feeling one thing and maybe you would, I'd be interested in working on one thing and then the next day it would be something else. But how do you, besides teaching, how do you keep yourself, your creative juices flowing and, and going and, you know, trying to, to stay on some sort of path with, with the shutdown and with everything that's going on? We want to pull our hair out with, with everything. Yeah. And sometimes it means not writing. I'm not somebody who has written every day day during all of this. And I, you know, I'd also just come out of what felt like a marathon where I was in rehearsal. I think I would have as much as a month without rehearsal and then I was back in and had been like that for about two years. So it's crazy because I, I wrapped up my last project. The last thing I had to sort of send in was uh, maybe it was March 8th. And I was like, okay, I'm going to rest. And then, you know, it was like, I don't know what kind of rest that is. And then the choice um, was made for you. So I had already been due for a break for a while. I don't know that one necessarily needs to stay on a path. I think sometimes sitting down can be important. And sometimes, and sometimes you go off on side paths that aren't going to lead you anywhere. And that's really important. You talk about knowing that you were due for a break, right? You know, at the time that COVID came. And I think it's important for 
people who are driven to be able to know, you know, how to take care of themselves in an appropriate way. What do you do to refuel yourself and recharge yourself when you're between projects? Do you have any sort of methodology or any kind of self-care or any particular thing that you do to help yourself heal between one thing, get rid of the residue from that thing so you can be fresh for the next thing? I certainly would not say I'm good at it. (laughs) And it's a frequent topic of therapy because I don't know how to take a vacation. I don't know how to rest. I don't know how to... Teaching becomes a laboratory. Teaching is really important to... I, I think I would go completely out of my mind without it because it's really important to be responsible to other people. It's not about me, 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 me. It's about, again, like I know I'm doing a bad job teaching if they're writing what they're writing because of my voice. And Mm. so teaching becomes a kind of practice of creating a situation where I'm getting out of the way, but I'm just sort of making a space for people to make things Mm -hmm. if I'm doing my job well. But it's also completely exhausting. So it's not like I'm getting any rest from that. It's a different mode. And, you know, exercise is really important. But also, I can't exercise without getting ideas for things to write. Because whatever sort of thing that that activity, whatever running does to the brain that creates supposedly neurologically, it's similar to what happens when you go in the shower and your brain sort of like reassembles. And so running becomes writing and then reading, just a lot of reading. I have gotten into accumulating art books and just spending time with visual art, which does something that words don't. Things like that have become helpful. But, you know, again, I have a very hard time of sitting still. And so if I'm not writing, then it's all going straight into teaching. It's all going straight into working with my students. Do you have any pieces that you've written that you can imagine them having another life on the screen? Well, this is a thing that I've been wrestling with and looking at and there was a good bit of interest in The Thin Place being a movie, which up till now I've passed on (laughs) because so much of what that is is about the theatrical act of it. And it's a fundamentally different thing if I turn it into a movie, which it could be, but I also didn't have the desire to. I've been looking a lot at what would I be interested in doing for the screen? And I don't think any of my plays would... I could be wrong. It could be a total lack of imagination, but I kind of would want to start ground up with something. Yeah. I mean, that's among the things in the cooker. I'm, I'm working on something right now for the screen. And what's interesting to me about it is thinking about what room there is to formally innovate for the screen. I'm not particularly interested in working on the play unless I have some idea about how the thing uses the stage, right? Like Dana H, the moment when it sort of popped for me was this sort of eerie act of channeling the voice and the tension between live actor and digital voice, how that functions as a kind of metaphor. 
So for me to get excited about a screen project, there has to be something that it's literally doing with the screen that makes the fact that it's happening on screen a kind of metaphor. So I do have I do have one thing that I am cooking up at the moment, but we'll see what happens with it. I, I can't talk about it. It is something that excites me. And among the reasons it excites me are the ways in which it, it is about right now. And it becomes a way of talking about now in a way that I don't think I could do on stage. You've given some tidbits of advice and you, you have a real passion. I can see your, your face and your eyes light up when you talk about teaching and inspiring young playwrights. Can you share with us uh, tidbits or advice that you're overall, I mean, I can't really talk about one particular student, but overall advice and guidance that you give your young playwrights today? Yeah. I mean, I one of the things that I kind of keep coming back to is I'm interested in how people talk about their plays and how people talk about their plays while they're working on their play. And I sometimes wonder if the language one uses to talk about their writing and what's happening in their play in some way affects how they write it. And if by changing the language they use, that changes how you write. So an example I think of a lot is if somebody's writing a scene between two people and they talk about one person connecting with the other person. I'm fascinated by that word connect because I actually don't know what it means. Yet it's a very pervasive word. And it's very pervasive because it's about something very important and very powerful and very emotionally substantial. So what happens is it's almost as if all that it contains is overwhelming. So we go to the word connect. But what happens if you're writing this scene that's about one person connecting with another and you remove the word and say, okay, now use more language and more varied language to say what you mean when you say connect and then write the scene again. Something interesting happens because then you have to talk about what that word means and all the movements and actions and motivations that are living inside of it. And what you say will never say everything. It can't. And that's why the word connect is such a pervasive word because it speaks to that which is almost too much to say. But I do think it then changes something in the quality of the writing. I wonder sometimes if it makes it better or worse, or if it depends on the writer. Sometimes the mystery of the word connect is really important to maintain and sort of explaining it takes away some mystery. So there are pros and cons to it. But if I notice that something in a scene is stuck, and then the writer is using limiting language to talk about it, to break it open and say more can open something up. Wow, I love that line of questioning. I can see how it really makes you go deep and find the truth of it. I love that. You're making me go, can I enroll in NYU? 
Well, I'll also do a shout out to John McWhorter, whose books on linguistics are pretty astonishing. And people should learn about John McWhorter as well, who very much kind of influenced some of this thinking. Well, Joy asked you kind of what, where you're going to next. I, I love how you say, immersed myself in interviews and, and writing of you of this past week to get to know you a little bit as, as a playwright. And, and you talk a lot about this messy research that you do. And I think we've gotten an idea of not necessarily how you write, but how you kind of throw things up and then see where it is. I love that term messy research. Can you talk about it a little bit? I, I think it's important for listeners to know kind of as a playwright what messy research is. Yeah, I, my, my 12.30 p.m. class today was my research workshop. So, <laughs> yeah, because this is something I've been really interested in is sort of what are ways to make research creative? And we do do exercises like people will go out and interview various folk on different topics and come back and sort of embody or perform those interviews and face questions from the class that they don't necessarily know answers to, at which point you actually have to start making it up. And you, you confront the, uh, the limits of your research, the limits of what you know, and you have to start to make some guesses, but the guesses might not be good guesses. And so you should turn all the guesses, all the um, attempts to make up what that person might've said, those then become questions that you then go back and do more reading or talk to more people to find out more about. So it's this movement back and forth between what you know and what you don't know. And I think you know one of my favorite exercises to do is I'll say, I'll pick a profession that a lot of people don't necessarily know too much about, right? So I'll say, write down everything you know about art dealers, everything you know. And you sort of like make a big list of everything you know or think you know about art dealers. And then I say, okay, I want you to write a scene where an art dealer is the main character. And so you write a scene where you based on what you were guessing an art dealer does, you, 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 you know, you imagine an art dealer. And then at the end of it, I say, okay, so what were your questions? As you were writing the scene, you probably noticed at points you were full of it. You were, you were, you were making some stuff up off the cuff. You were, you were realizing, wait, I don't know how this works. So now you're like acutely in touch with your questions I think people struggle to ask questions. I actually think questions are something people have a really hard time doing. And I have this suspicion. I, I, I talked to this behavioral psychologist once and she said, yeah, about age eight or nine kids, their ability to ask a question that they're actually curious about starts to degrade a little bit. And it may be part of the educational system. It may be part of like, you're appreciated on what you know, not what you don't know or you start to ask questions to impress people. So often I'll say like, okay, so you wrote a scene. Now what questions does an eight-year-old have about it? Because that gets you to the really good stuff. And now you have a reason to read. So when I was talking about the messy research, it's that, well, I go in and out of reading things and I'll jump around and I'll, I'll just follow my curiosity wherever it takes me which is a little different than the process where you have a big pile of books and, okay, before I write my play, I have to read through all of these books first and then write the play. There's a kind of movement back and forth between 
writing, guessing, realizing I'm full of it, going back to basics, stripping it apart, asking questions, realizing how little I know. But you kind of have to have that moment where you hit a wall and you realize, oh, yeah, I'm just making stuff up now. When you write a piece, I know you're writing for the, the life of the characters and the story that you're telling. And then you hand it off to somebody else who's going to direct it. And these actors who are going to make it come to life. And you see a whole new world on top of the world that you created. Do you ever have a hope or thought when you walk away from that production, any production, that you're hoping that the audience member left with? And, is, and if so, is there a through line for you in as a playwright, as an artist, for what you hope that an audience member leaves with after seeing one of your shows? It's interesting. It may be just because it, it was the last thing I was just talking about, but I actually would hope that there's a kind of a string of questions that they have. Not necessarily questions about the play. Well, I mean, it, you know, like I want them to be clear on like what, what happened, what literally people were doing in the sense of, you know, stepping apart from the play that there's a greater sense of curiosity or wondering or wanting to kind of check, wait, why do I think what I think? maybe I do want them to spiral a little bit like some of my characters tend to. One of my students pointed out the other day that they noticed that in the last couple of pages of all, almost all my plays, somebody spirals into this like, wait, hold on, wait, wait, what, what, you know, type moment. And I think that's something I'm wanting to generate. I, I think about like when I was in high school and I discovered Stanley Kubrick, who, which who my mother introduced me to. She introduced me to Stanley Kubrick. And I, I remember the experience of watching something like 2001, where you do feel like you're just kind of dropped off a cliff and you think, wait, hold on. What, what, what? <laughs> and there's a kind of, there's a kind of, it's so abrupt in how it ends and it's so unexpected that you find yourself retracing your steps a bit and i had that too the first time i ever saw i mean i have it i have it with um you know when i was a college student in new york and saw my first ever richard foreman show which completely agitated me and got under my skin or the first time i ever encountered adrian kennedy's work like there's a kind of it's such a specific unique perspective it sends you reeling a bit. And um, it's something that I really valued. I think pieces like that too ask you leaving questions for sure. And I, I think that your plays do the same thing. I remember when the lights came down after Doll's House Part Two, and we all just kind of sat there for a second and the conversations immediately started on our way out. Not only because we had, a, we had something to reference before, and what it is now. And I think that that's such an important voice and, and your voice in American theater is, is so important now and the work that you do. So I, I leave it at that. Joy, do you, do you have a, a final question for, for Lucas? No, I don't. I, I love, what I t my takeaway from what you said in terms of what you'd like to leave people with is the idea of self-inventory. And Yeah, yeah. Yeah. That's it. No, I, I always, in my class, I, the number of times I say the phrase taking stock, take mm -hmm. stock, take stock, you know, and that 
I'm referring to a writing process, but yeah, obviously, uh, it, yeah, that that's that is the that is the thing that that I think you're you're right. That's what the plays are after. Yeah, I love that because that on a personal level, I feel like I'm always I'm in that space. Sometimes my daughter, who's 18, is like, "Mom, everything doesn't mean something," and I'm like, "Yes, it does." You know. <laughs> So that self inventory thing is so huge for me. And I just want to say thank you so much for putting that into the, into the world and also putting that in consciousness for people. Because I think that self inventory is the key to healing. And right now we need tools to help us with healing. So thank you for promoting that idea. I would agree there. And uh, to see Lori Metcalf in, in anything, I would sell an organ for so <laughs> i mean you you two seem to speak the same language i guess when it comes to a lot of your work and i just think she's she's magnificent in your work so I, all, you have a big crew like core crew of actors that you seem to to use over and over and i love i love seeing that it's like a, it's like a throwback to the group theater and the way it was many of the same actors playing all different parts and i love that about your work and your core group of your group actors. So thank you. I wish you well. I wish you safety. I wish you good health and continued success in teaching. I can't wait to see what your next piece is. I know you can't talk about it, but I'll be the first in line for it. So thank you for your artistry and for talking about your craft. I know it's, it's a little uncomfortable for some artists to talk about it, but you were so open and honest and I so appreciate that. And that's what we love on this show. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. Um, thank you, Joy, for coming with me today. Absolutely. And talking with Lucas. That's our show for today. Thank you everyone for listening. Thank you, Lucas. Thank you, Joy. Be safe, be happy. Stay well. And that's our show. Only one more show is left for this year, but we have a little gift for our listeners. We have a special holiday edition coming out next week on Wednesday, December 16th. We will be releasing a special interview with Everett Bradley. Everett will be telling us about his extensive musical and theatrical career and sharing information on his upcoming holiday special, Holidelic Home with Papadelic which will be available for free online starting December 17th. Then on Friday, December 18th, Joy and I will be speaking with Hubert Point du Jour. Hubert has starred off-Broadway in multiple shows at the Public Theater. He will next be starring in the Showtime series, The Good Lord Bird. But you may already know him from the television series, Madam Secretary, Blind Spot, and The Path. For our first interview of 2021, Joy and I will speak with the amazing duo of Jessica Blank and Eric Jensen, from the exonerated to coal country and everything in between. We will even talk about their special personal connection to the Lucille Lortel Theater. That will air on Friday, January 8th, 2021. For more information on these guests and how to attend one of our future recordings next year from the comfort of your own home, please visit us at liveatthelortel.com. This podcast is brought to you by the Lucille Lortel Theater. Live at the Lortel is produced by George Forbes, executive producer, yours truly, associate producer, Jeffrey Schubart. Press is provided by Sin Gogolak, GoGo Public Relations. And our social media is managed by Mia Radia. Special thanks to Nancy Hurwitz, Alana Canty-Samuel, and Maura Levines. 
Live at the Lortello is recorded online by Brian Falk, Abacus Entertainment. While theaters are closed, we hope you will consider donating to the COVID-19 Emergency Relief Fund at actorsfund.org or your favorite theater company. Thank you so much for listening. 